You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. But it's great to be together tonight. Um, I'm really excited to um, introduce to you our incredible guest speaker, um, she was raised in Miami, Florida, graduated from the University of Florida in 1975 with a degree in broadcast journalism and a minor in theater. And I think our young women will love this because she was a panelist on a regional television show called 30 Below. And it was a show that addressed the questions and concerns of those under the age of 30. Now, Kay became a Christian just before her senior year of college and was a member of the Crossroads Church of Christ. Um, she was married in 1977 and began serving in the campus ministry in Charleston, Illinois, and Columbia, South Carolina, uh, where she had her two children, Summer and Kent. Um, anyhow, they began to dream for the mission uh, field and trained for that and went to Munich, Germany, and then to Paris, France, and uh, after two years in Europe, they returned to Boston to lead the church there until 2004. Um, they've, I mean, Kay is a very accomplished woman. And in 2007, they, uh, after a brief hiatus from the full-time ministry, they moved to the D.C. area uh, to serve the Northern Virginia Church. And during their 12 years there, they grew the church from 140 members to almost 500 and so they have done incredible things ministerially, uh, and uh, in addition to that, they she has served on the teachers' service team for the International Churches of Christ. She's also an author of several books, and most recently, after four decades of serving in the ministry, her and her husband retired and moved to Maui. They are living the dream, right? The retired dream. So. We're just so grateful that she's here with us. She gets to enjoy her four grandchildren, uh, two uh, personal, in person and two uh, on Zoom, of course, uh, because her two other grandkids are in uh, Saudi Arabia with their family. So anyhow, Kay, we're so grateful to have you. We so look forward to hearing you speak. And without further ado, I want to give you Kay McKean. Oh, but before I give you Kay... If you have questions, please put them in the chat, and we will do a Q&A at the end. Uh, so I give you Kay McKean. Great. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much uh, for that introduction, Carrie, and thank you to Steve and Carrie for giving me a call a month or so ago and asking me to do this. And uh, so I'm honored and privileged and feel grateful to be asked. I do come to you from the beautiful island of Maui. And um, we've been here for all, well over a year now, and uh, we are part of the Maui Christian Church, uh, which I have been to church maybe three or four times because of COVID, but um, it's been great when I have been able to go. Um, but the, the, the Maui Church actually was planted in 19, uh, let's see, 1995 from the Oahu Church, which was planted, I think, in 89. But the L.A. church was responsible and helpful in uh, all these Hawaiian churches. So thank you to 
all of you in California for your help. And it just uh, is another reminder of how connected we are. Um, and even just in the chat beforehand, I see people from that I knew from Europe or Boston or from somewhere else or through kids or whatever. And so we're all connected in some way. And that's that's really cool. I think that's really great. And that's really what these lessons are about is finding our connections, our roots in our history as well. And uh, I did watch the uh, other the recordings of the other lessons and uh, found them great and, and fascinating and interesting and educational. And that's what we're all about here today, this evening. It's still daytime here. but um, And I, I wanted to start out with a quote from a book that I like, and it's this, this quote. It says, if you want to understand any woman, you must first ask her about her mother and then listen carefully. And uh, obviously that's dealing with understanding a human being, but in the same way, if you want to understand the church, if you want to understand your church, your ministry, your culture, then you have to find out about the roots of that culture. And that's what I'm going to be talking about this evening uh, before I get into it, I really want to kind of do a disclaimer, and that is that when we look at history, we see the good and the bad and the ugly. Um, and remember that history is usually taught from one point of view, one side, and we have to remember that, you know, sometimes we don't have all the facts, uh, especially when you're talking about things that happened many years ago, but even when you're talking about more contemporary things, we don't always have all the facts, and we don't. We, we see things from one particular side, and we don't know all the people. We don't know the, the motives. We don't know their hearts. We don't know their dreams. And so you kind of have to remember that when you're talking about history, about things even in the church. Uh, I'm just telling you one side of this. Um, I'm going to guide you on a journey through the last few dec several decades, and I want to say right now that some people will remember some of these events differently than I remember them. And, um, you know, even sometimes memories aren't all that accurate. But just to keep that in mind, that I'm trying to do my best at, at reporting to you some of the things that happened. And I think I've researched a lot and I've remembered a lot. But just to be cautious. And, um, you know, I've read histories even of our movement that have that I personally, you know, wouldn't necessarily agree with. I thought, oh, that's not exactly what happened. Um, so I'm just going to do my best here, as I recall. And I have a lot of bulletins and notes and resources. But just remember that this is a history. It's not the history. It's a history. It's, it's my understanding, my perspective, my memories of what happened. And honestly, I think if we could remember that whenever anybody's telling a history or their memories, it's from their perspective. And we'd save a lot of trouble if we kind of keep that in mind. Um, so you've been doing all these lessons on church history, starting a few weeks ago with John Oakes and the history of the ancient Christians from way back when, and then Professor Doherty, um, you know, talking about the the uh, history of the uh, Stone Campbell movement. And I'm just going to do a little bit of reminder here that um, Pro Professor Doherty explained that there was quite of an quite an explosion of evangelistic zeal following World War II. And I even remember, even though I wasn't around at that time, I'm not quite that old. But I remember people talking about the Jewel Miller film strips. I remember hearing about that and how people from the Church of Christ would invite people into their homes and show these film strips that, you know, supposedly would give them the plan of salvation, and then they would get baptized and join the Church of Christ. 
Um, but the, be, all that time between 1945 and 1960, the Church of Christ was the fastest growing religious group in, in America. And um, that's pretty remarkable and something that is a part of our past that we, you know, we're, we're familiar with. Um, but beginning in the 1960s, the Churches of Christ had begun to shrink dramatically, a market drop in growth, and many Churches of Christ were closing their doors. Um, conversions were few, uh, mostly children of members that were baptized, and they sadly didn't remain faithful. So here we have around the 1960s, time of, beginning of 70s, a time of great unrest, civil unrest, you know, assassinations, a lot of things going on, the women's liberation movement. It's, it's a very tumultuous time. And I, you know, of course, I was a young person in the uh, 60s and 70s, and I remember things pretty distinctly. I remember when the principal came over the loudspeaker and told us about Kennedy being shot. I remember when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and I was uh, headed to Washington, D.C. from Miami for my eighth grade field trip, and we couldn't go in the city because of the civil uh, unrest and, and just the problems that were going on then. And and I just, you know, I remember Nixon's famous speech when he had to resign and, and because of the Watergate scandal. All this happened, and it set up a sort of a, an atmosphere among a lot of people my age, college age, teenagers, early 20s, people who had the attitude of you can't trust government. There's civil unrest. There's dissatisfaction with the status quo and, you know, just everything of the previous generation. And, you know, uh, Carrie mentioned that I was on that show called 30 Below because the, really the theme, I mean, if there had been a bumper sticker, it would have said, don't trust anyone over 30. That was, I mean, that was what was everybody's psyche was, you know, just the youth movement was pretty strong. So in that, with that background, you enter into an era of religious revival that began in the early 70s in Gainesville, Florida. So I'm, I'm going back a little bit before. Way back there, but stay with me here. In 1967, a man named Chuck Lucas, who, who had graduated from Harding College, or which is now Harding University, it's the Church of Christ College, was invited to what was then the 14th Street Church of Christ in Gainesville, Florida. It was right across the street from the campus. And at that time, it was a small church. Five members were students. But the goal that was given at that time was the, for the people there to start reaching out to their campus friends. And in the Church of Christ, a lot of times um, members of the Church of Christ would send their children to colleges, to Church of Christ colleges, um, so they'd be around that. But now the idea that Chuck had was we've got to convert the people that are on the, the universities, the public universities, and not just go to the Church of Christ colleges. So from the time of his ministry there, the membership began to soar. And eventually, um, eventually, after several years, baptizing hundreds of students a year at this little church in Gainesville, Florida. They outgrew their small building. Uh, the Crossroads Church, 14th Street became Crossroads, was built. And even after the first year or so, <clears throat> they had to expand because they were having so many baptisms, so many more students come. And um, over the next decade, the membership of the Crossroads Church grew to over a thousand, and included students, single adults, married adults, black, white, Hispanic. I mean, it was just a huge population of Christians wanting to serve God. 
And it was out of this ministry, the Crossroads ministry, that scores of men and women were trained and sent out to do the same thing in their uh, in, in other churches, they were sent out to do the same thing. And so these young men would go out, they'd go to other churches of Christ across the country, convert people, send them out again. So the, this was what was happening in the 70s, okay? So I'm just going to you, give you a few names um, of, of people who were converted at Crossroads or by someone who had been at Crossroads and were sent out as campus ministers. Um, this is not a complete list. It's just a sample, but it's a few people that I think you might know their names. Sam Wang, Kit McKean, Tom Brown, Randy McKean, Martin Bentley, Wyndham Shaw, Dan Allison, Sheridan Wright, Sam Powell, Bruce Williams. By 1980, over 60 trained ministers were sent out from Crossroads, and that was just the beginning. Over the next several years, it would be hundreds of others, men and women, who were inspired to go into the ministry and to serve in other churches the way and, and, and in the same way. And when I listed those men, I, I, I wanted you to notice that I'm not intentionally leaving the women out, but the women um, were full-time volunteers. They were very rarely hired on staff, but that's just the way it was at that time. They didn't receive a salary, and I was one of those. Um, you know, expectation to be on campus and be building the ministry, but no salary. That's just the way it was. Okay, so here's the thing, is that as these men and women were sent out, eventually uh, some things happened. Um, these men and women went to mainstream churches of Christ, and although there, was a, there were a lot of conversions, a lot of growth, um, sometimes the divisions started. Um, it, it became a phenomenon, even among other churches of Christ. And, you know, even though all these people had been baptized, there were some people that were starting to criticize it, that were, were, were starting to um, be against it a bit. And so that we'll talk about a little bit more about that. But um, just even understanding that from that beginning, when you want to know your roots, understanding that Crossroads was a place where, it began, thousands of baptisms have happened, churches have been planted all over the world. You know, we've broken racial barriers, cultural barriers, language barriers, we're starting to do the gender barrier thing, and it's continuing. So that's just the beginning there. And I just want to say what made Crossroads so impacting, what made it so different. And at this time, I want to give you my four themes of um, – that I think carry through over the last 50 years, 40 years. Um, these themes will help you to know sort of what, what were the things that happened? What were the things that made it so different, starting at crossroads? So in my four themes, number one, mission. Um, of course, we all are familiar with Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came. I give you all, I have authority, go make disciples of all nations. That's, that's sort of been the pivotal scripture. And one of the abiding themes since the days of Crossroads is the personal conviction that Christians are on a mission, not just to live good lives and be good people, but to provide the gospel message in any way they could to as many people as they could. At Crossroads, <clears throat> all members participated in what was called soul talks. And, um, you know, it was the 70s, but soul talks was what we called them. They were informal yet led Bible discussion groups. 
And, um, you know, those were the, that was our method. That was our tool that we could use. And students were expected to bring visitors to these soul talks. Okay. Theme one was mission. Theme two is relationships. John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give you, love one another. At Crossroads, everyone had a prayer partner. They were not assigned usually. They were, it was up to a person to ask someone. And that prayer partner they would get with every week and pray, confess sin, share their lives, and so forth. That was that was the second theme. Third theme is lordship. Luke 9.23, he said to them all, whoever wants to be a disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and daily and follow me. You know, making the proclamation that Jesus is Lord was a sincere statement of commitment to Jesus in every area of life. This involved a single-mindedness towards God, Christ's priority, making it a goal. And at Crossroads, this was described as totally committed. Someone was totally committed. They came to the services. They were part of the soul talks. They were bringing people to the Lord. And the focus on Jesus was emphasized in every sermon, every lesson, every class, every prayer partner time, every devotional. Jesus was the focus. And the fourth theme is biblical literacy. Uh, John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Uh, At Crossroads, every Christian took classes, memorized scriptures, would take quizzes. We had our little index cards. We'd memorize the scriptures. Um, And I have to say, uh, the interpretation skills were weak at that time. But they certainly knew the Bible. Uh, The messages and lessons and prayers always included deep and intense Bible study. So I could add a lot of other themes, but those, mission, relationships, biblical literacy, lordship, those were the themes that I think are going to carry us through the next few decades. And I could add, you know, I could could have made the theme unity or love or holiness or or the Holy Spirit or I could I could use any of those. but those four themes seem to cover most of it, and, and I hope they do for you. Um, so in contrast to the religious world, and in particular to the mainstream Church of Christ, although these were things that people believed in, they were not things that were practiced. Um, they may have paid lip service to them, but there was not a devotion to these themes. And that's what made everything so different. And... Um, So I'm going to put a little flesh on what I've just said. I was baptized in August of 1974. My senior year of college began as a new Christian, uh, a member of the Crossroads Church. And I I always remember, I still could envision one day walking down the hall. I was in a sorority. I was walking down the hall. And I I, I realized I am doing what God wants me to do. I, I I am living the life that God called me to. And it was such a eureka moment for me. I, you know, I was living a pure life. I'd given up some of the sin, the promiscuity, the drinking, all of that that goes into the college life that I was a part of. Um, I was inviting other people to church and to soul talk. I was sharing my faith. I was enjoying great friendships, prayer partner relationships. Bible study and prayer were daily and hourly things. Um, I was with church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Friday night, and a few soul talks in between. And I was even doing pretty well in school, believe it or not. I mean, you know, I was keeping up my grades somewhat. 
But it was like such a wonderful feeling to know that I was doing what God had called me to do, what God created me to do. Now, I want to put a little aside here, and that is I want to add that as a woman, I, I think that there were some things taught back then that I adhered to that I would not agree with today. Um, the exclusion of women from any kind of leadership, any kind of upfront, anything, um, might seem appalling to some of you younger women today. And I'm glad we, we began to address that through the years, and we're still addressing it today. But anyway, that's where it was in the 70s. And another thing to remember is that Crossroads was still part of the Church of Christ. Um, you know, it was that was that was our roots. Uh, at this time, Crossroaders, as we were called, were beginning to get persecuted uh, by people on campus. It was said that you know we we told they told the freshmen watch out for bicycles and Crossroaders because you'd ultimately get hit by a bicycle or you'd get hit by a Crossroader. Um, and, you know, that, that was just happening. But it wasn't just happening from campus and the people around us. It was also happening from the mainstream church. They were kind of questioning us and criticizing and so forth. And, uh, you know, but we were still part of that church. We were an a cappella church. If you don't know what that means, that means, you know, we sang without instruments, just like all the other churches of Christ. And it was beautiful. I mean, we knew somebody mentioned earlier about the singing harmony. We knew how to sing. Um but there were many in the Church of Christ that were highly critical of what we were doing at Crossroads. Um, several influential leaders who were finding fault, assuming the worst. And the, that foreshadows what is to come and what led to the separation that would occur later. Um, after graduation from college, I stayed in Gainesville. I started dating Randy. We got married. In 1977, we went to Columbia, South Carolina, which and we were a part of Randy was hired as a campus minister at the Shandon Church of Christ. And, uh, you know, we, we were so excited we had a job. I mean, I didn't have a job, but he had a job. And we were making $14,000 a year. Woohoo! We were, you know, we were made in the shade, drinking lemonade. We were really excited. We had no benefits, no insurance, no retirement plan. Uh, all of that really came to a head when I discovered that I was expecting after one year of marriage and we had no health insurance or anything. But anyway, that's another story. But we did begin to do the same thing, tried to start the same kind of ministry. And um, I, I think that things were great. Randy and I were on campus all the time. We were starting to have baptisms, but we were starting to get resistance from the people in the church. And we were trying to do the same thing, mission, relationships, biblical literacy, lordship. But the people in the church, a lot of the members, were giving us a lot of pushback. And saying, no, 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 that's what you young people do. We don't need to do that. Um, I don't need to, you know, I know the Bible. You don't need to, tell, I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to have relationships like that. Nobody's going to tell me, you know, to read my Bible or, and so forth. And I'm sure there were a lot of people that had some really good hearts, but we started feeling that kind of criticism. And as I say this, I don't want to imply that, you know, that they were all bad and everything. We, we did some bad things, too. But there was this divide that was starting. Um, I just want to say one other thing about that, and that is that many of the churches that hired us, not, not just Randy and I, but other Crossroads guys that left Crossroads and went out, we were hired primarily by white Church of Christ churches, and um, in our in our case, 
it was all white. Um, in town, there was a black Church of Christ that we did fellowships with. We went to their worship service, their sing, sing-along services, which were awesome. Um, you know, but, but there wasn't, it wasn't integrated. This is the South, and it's the 70s. So when we converted our first black student off of the University of South Carolina campus, one of the older members came up to Randy and said, oh, that's great. You know, you baptized that young man, and he can go to the black church. And Randy said, no way. He's not going to the black church. He's staying with us. He's staying here. And we continued to reach out and baptize black and white students. And sadly, there were some people who left because they did not want to be in the same congregation. So, again, this kind of tells you where we were coming from. And there became this dichotomy in the church. And, you know, I appreciated Dr. I mean, Professor Doherty's description. I, I remember he showed you the, the – well, maybe he didn't. But he, he talked about there being a, a, like a fork, like a slight separation. But um, it wasn't – for many of us, it was pretty much a dead end. Um, we had so many difficulties reconciling what we were doing with what some of the older members were doing. And there's a book that actually came out in 1980 called The, the uh, Crossroads Controversy. And this uh, was written by a man from the Church of Christ who wrote about all the things that are going on in Crossroads in Gainesville and what even the guys who were going out were doing. And he was very positive, but he also said, he also says in this book, you know, all the people in the churches that were opposing this, that were hesitant, that were resistant. And, um, you know, it's just, that's just the way it was. Um, We all face these kinds of challenges. And I'm going to say it again. We weren't perfect in handling it. Many of the young ministers were prideful and arrogant. Surprise, surprise thinking we knew it all, and obviously we have to take responsibility for not being more humble and patient, but that's just the way it was. And I also want to make clear at this time that what we were dealing with was from Church of Christ leaders at that time, um, not at this time. And I'm not saying that the Church of Christ is like that now, but we were we were getting quite a lot of criticism, and um, we just wanted, you know, I just wanted to make that clear that I'm not saying that's what they're all like, like now. All of that that I've just said is sort of a prequel to what you're really asking me about is the ICOC. But you have to know that in order to understand this. Um, In 1979, Kit McKean, who happens to be my brother-in-law, my husband's brother, who I went to college with, known him. We went on double dates together. I've known him since we were all young in our 19, 20 years old. Passionate man fired up, wanting to change the world, he began his ministry in what was then called the Lexington Church of Christ, right outside of Boston. Kip had learned a lot from his experiences and from others and and felt like, okay, if the whole congregation that he was going to didn't commit and wholeheartedly agree on those four themes, now he articulated them slightly differently, but those four themes, uh, that was sort of his condition on going to that church and working with that church. And the group of people there agreed. So he began his ministry there, and he stressed the need for every member to be what he called a true disciple, totally committed. 
Without the stress of division in the church, without the criticism from members, without the bad examples and lack of emotional support, Kip's ministry thrived. He did what all the other Crossroads trained members had tried to do, hitting the pavement, evangelizing on campus, leading soul talks, training other members. That's what he was doing. And they were so successful that eventually many other Crossroads trained ministers wanted to learn from Kip and wanted to come. So there was this mass influx of hundreds of Christians, really, moving to the Boston area for training. Um, They wanted to be a part of something great. And they hoped to learn and eventually take it somewhere else. You know, they wanted to go out in other places. Um, It included a lot of the Crossroads trained people, but a lot of even some people from the Church of Christ. Um, Okay, now we're getting into what I'm going to call the Boston church planting era. By the mid-1980s, the Lexington Church was growing dramatically and eventually changed the name to the Boston Church of Christ as people from all over the metropolitan area um, were being converted. So the Boston Church was really lighting a fire under many men and women regarding the need for mission work overseas. So lots of people were moving to Boston for that purpose. Some of them had very successful ministries, but they realized the great need in other countries. By 1983, the Boston Church had sent out three pivotal church plantings to London, New York, and to Chicago. So what made these plantings different? It's very important. They set the stage for how other church plantings would occur. Instead of going to an existing church of Christ, which we were still, we are still officially a part of, mission teams would be developed and groups of 10, 20, maybe more, maybe less men and women would go to begin their own congregation to plant a new church. So, That's where, really, my husband and I, Randy, came in. We wanted to do that, too. We caught the mission fever, and we decided to move to Boston ourselves in 1986. Uh, We actually were initially slated to go to Tokyo. Um, Yeah, that that would have been a mistake. We can't hardly, we can't can't speak Japanese. Uh, In fact, we did go there for a few months in 1986, but then uh, made our home in Boston for a while to train and prepare for mission work. So by 1988, um, I'm just this is a bulletin, a Boston Church bulletin from 1988, and it's already telling you about the churches that have been planted uh, over the last, you know, over the past uh, decade. Uh, New York, Providence, uh, Toronto, Johannesburg, Paris, Stockholm, Bombay, Kingston. Uh, All of these are in the 85, 86, 87 period of time. Mexico, Buenos Aires, Hong Kong. Um, all of these churches had been planted in that period of time, in the 80s. Um, and it was, you know, they were just growing. They were thriving. Um, I want to go back to the four themes again. What was different about Boston? Okay, mission. Well, there was still the mission, absolutely. But there began a series of, um, we were taught a series of studies called First Principles that every Christian had to learn uh, in order to reach out, in order to study with people. Um, people were involved in Bible talks. They weren't called soul talks anymore. We're in New England. This is, that's not going to work there. Um, and Bible talk leaders would be very accountable for who was coming and who was studying. Um, most people that were there hoped to be on a mission team someday. Um, this is a time when the phrase, and I don't know if you all have heard this, the phrase disciple equals Christian equals saved, 
that phrase was crystallized. And that phrase was used in a lot of ways to convince religious people of their need to really be true disciples. Um, many mission, like I said, many mission teams were sent out. Um, you know, I remember hearing about the one suitcase challenge, and that was the people who were going to India, and they only took one suitcase. Um, so all of this under mission. Then relationships, okay? Instead of prayer partners, every person now had a discipleship partner. And, you know, these were usually assigned, um, not always. One person who might be slightly older uh, spiritually would be over the younger one. And interestingly, it didn't really matter about the age or the life stage of the person. Often you'd have a 20-year-old college student who'd been a Christian a year or so discipling a 40-year-old wife and mother with two kids who became a Christian three weeks ago. So it, it, was, it was changing the whole idea of, of discipling. Lordship, of course, was still stressed. Um, I, I will say there's a slight nuance, change in nuance of the words because we use the phrase a lot more, um, uh, I'm a disciple of Jesus. And that's, that's great, but it kind of changed the focus from Jesus as Lord to I am a disciple and what do I need to do. So, you know, maybe semantics aren't really all that important, but I think you can think about that. What, what did that mean? Biblical literacy, of course, this was still emphasized. Everyone knew their scriptures. We had scripture memorization and quizzes and so forth. And again, a reminder, the Boston church is still considered a part of the Church of Christ. <clears throat> However, one of the major convictions about mainstream Church of Christ was and is, is autonomy among congregations. That means that each congregation uh, is, is self-sufficient. You don't look to other congregations to sort of tell you what your practices and your policies and so forth are going to be. With the Boston Church plantings, this changed dramatically. None of the churches would be seen as autonomous but were under the leadership of the Boston church or the church that sent them out. So in 1988, the plan for world sector leaders began to take shape. Uh, these were men chosen by KIPP along with their wives to be responsible for certain regions of the world, world sector leaders, and they would be accountable to KIPP. Um, so Kip would use the scripture in Exodus where Moses was told, you know, you need to find other people to take care of things. And so that, that scripture is in Exodus 18 about select capable men so that they can do some of the work for you. So Kip decided to choose these men and a focused few uh, needed to forcefully advance God's multiplying, multiplying ministry movement. Those are his words. I'm quoting him. So he chose these men. Uh, and I'll read them to you so you'll know. Doug Arthur, Steve Johnson, Randy McKean, Phil Lamb, Frank Kim, Scott Green, and Tom Brown. And then he also added Al Baird and Bob Gimple. Now, those world sector leaders changed through the years somewhat, but those were basically the, the beginning. And so you have to understand that this is where, in one sense, the thrust of hierarchy begins to take shape. Um, through the work of the mission teams, those who remained in Boston, you know, the number of disciples was dramatically growing and changing, but everyone was accountable to somebody else. And, um, you know, a Bible talk leader to a house church leader to a region leader to a church leader, a geographic sector leader, a world sector leader. And ultimately, you know, we all kind of looked to Kip to guide us and to direct our efforts. 
And it's not to say that there were, they were all yes men or that there weren't disagreements or whatever. It's not to say that. But Kip instilled in everyone this dream to evangelize the world in this generation. And that was, that was so inspiring. And it caused so many people, so many people were enamored with that. It was so lofty and noble. And so we didn't really think that the system was that bad. Um, we didn't see the flaws in it at that time because, honestly, it was working. It was working really well. Okay, let's move to the 90s, and this is where things get really interesting. Okay, so Kip had been in Boston. In the 90s, he left to go to L.A., and uh, Randy and I at this time, we were living in Paris. Um, we had been, we'd been sent there. We were working. There was a small group there. We worked with them. We were leading the church. We were having baptisms. Um, we were enjoying that. We were enjoying the people. We were trying to speak the language, and um, we were loving it. We loved the city. We loved the people. We loved the food. I mean, it was just a wonderful time. We, our kids were in the French public schools. They were learning French. Um, we lived in a little apartment in the 14th arrondissement, if you know anything about Paris. Uh, we didn't own a car. We took the metro everywhere. I would stop on my way home. I would walk the kids to school. I'd stop on the way back at the boulangerie, or the, and, and, you know, I'd walk in, oh, bonjour, mademoiselle, you know, and they'd offer me my baguettes and my croissants. I mean, I loved this period of my life. It was great. And then one night, a phone call came. It was the need for us, it indicated the need for us to return to Boston and lead the huge Boston church. And to be honest, you know, Randy and I went kicking and screaming. We didn't want to go, but we were convinced it was where God needed us to be, or at least that's what we were convinced to be convinced about. The Boston church at that time had a membership of about 3,000 people. So remember, this started, you know, with just a small group, and now it's 3,000, and a lot of those the majority of them were baptisms, but they were also people who had moved into Boston that were still there, that hadn't been sent out on a mission team, that were still helping and serving in great ways. Um, but um, I, I think that when we got there, um, we did see more and more cracks and flaws in the system, this, this authority system and the accountability system. We were starting to see, uh-oh, something's not right here. But, you know, things are happening and things are still going well. In the early 1990s, um, the Churches of Christ basically made it clear that they were distancing themselves from the Boston Church of Christ and her plantings. In 1993, in a gathering in L.A. Uh, with more than 10,000 disciples, the name International Church of Christ was formally adopted. So there you have it, 1993. Now we are the International Church of Christ. Um, by this time, churches had been planted in 53 countries um, from the Boston Church or from the planting of the Boston Church or from that, that line of succession, as you will. And um, it's, it's great. It's growing. And during these years, other important things were happening that still influence us today. I want to share those with you. Um, Hope Worldwide. Uh, was established as the benevolent arm of the uh, Boston Church of Christ, and it now has become uh, an international organization that continues to meet the needs of the poor and needy around the world. So this started in Boston just trying to figure out a way, how can we involve, how can we be involved in helping the poor and needy, which is our biblical mandate, um, and, and, and what organizational skills can we use to do that? And so we started 
hope worldwide with contributions and and getting out there and meeting people and trying to know what the needs were and just one little thing to to uh, mention i mean there were so many things that hope worldwide did and still does and you know hopefully you know about that but um in 1994 there was a call for the whole boston church to start praying and saving up to uh contribute to a leper colony in um in, in India, in Delhi area of India. And um, so everybody in church was saving money, and they kept talking about, you know, save money for the leper colony, save money for the leper colony. And, you know, so one day this um, my friend, Jeannie Shaw, her son, Sam, who at that time was, I don't know, maybe eight, seven, and uh, he was so excited about it, and he told his mom, I've saved up money for the leprechauns. And so, you know, everybody always talked about the leprechauns and, you know, how we were saving money to save the leprechauns. But we built a a leper colony. The Hope Worldwide built a a beautiful facility. And in 1994, the world sector leaders uh, all went on on a trip to India and we visited this leper colony. And, you know, just for me, I mean, to be in India was fascinating enough, exotic enough. But to see a leper colony and know that we had contributed to that to make it a place where people could live, have clean water, uh, you know, have their own homes, have a roof over their heads, it was really impressive. And I I found this picture. I I don't know if you can see this on the screen, but this is a picture of the world sector leaders at uh, this hope, at this uh, village of hope is what it was called, with some of the children of the lepers. And um, it was just, you know, such a fascinating time for me. I, I'll always remember that. So Hope Worldwide was a big thing that happened then. Also in 1993, uh, <clears throat> Discipleship Publications International. You've probably heard of uh, Illumination uh, Publications, but Discipleship Publications was sort of the, the mother of that. And that started in Boston. And actually started, it was sort of the brainchild of Randy, my husband, because uh, we were leading the Boston Church at that time, and he was aware of the need for printed and audio, of course it was cassette tapes and uh, books, um, to equip the disciples. And so we started this ministry, Discipleship Publications International. I have a bulletin here about announcing the inauguration of the Discipleship Publications International, and uh, this is from '93. <clears throat> um, and, you know, just to, I, I can't show you all of these, but... I just pulled out of my bookshelf a few of the books from Discipleship Publications International. Uh, Gordon Ferguson, Golden Rule Leadership, a lot of women's books. Um, let's see. I just have several of them. The first, The Mission. There's a new mission coming out right now uh, written by younger people. Uh, Questions and Answers by Doug Jacoby. Seek First the Kingdom, uh, edited by Tom and Sheila Jones, and so forth and so on. So that's that's what was happening in the 90s, and um, now what you've all been waiting for, I think you've been waiting for it. Okay, before I show this, I think somebody said in one of the last classes that, you know, how did they, what was their strategy for getting all these churches out in all these places all over the world? And somebody said something about, you know, was there a, you know, a map of the world on the wall, and somebody threw a dart, and wherever that landed, that's where they'd go, and you know, of course, that's not what happened. It might have looked that way and felt that way. But this is the evangelization. Oops, upside down. This is the evangelization proclamation, and this was produced in 1994 as a um, a plan for how we would evangelize the world. Um, 
And so, you know, all of the world sector leaders, there we are. We all signed it. This is one of the originals, which honestly, I was like, why do we bring that to Hawaii with us, you know? But the whole point of that was that this um, that proclamation, it, here's a quote, today, compelled by the spirit and 5 billion lost souls, we lay before the brotherhood a simple but comprehensive strategy for the completion of world evangelism. Presently, there exist 160 countries with a city of at least 100,000 people. Disciples are only in 49. Therefore, we give you this charge. Give to God your dreams, your energies, your health, your finances, your intellects, your families, and yes, even your life to plant churches in the remaining 111 nations by the year 2000. So that was part of it. There's obviously a lot more to it than that. But You know, this was a lofty ideal. It was noble. It required everyone to do whatever it took to see it happen. Every event, every activity, every financial decision of every church would have this organizational goal before them. So, um, you know, those four themes, let's go back to it. Of course, mission was paramount. Relationships, you know, prayer partners, I mean, excuse me, discipleship partners, um, you know, they were close. They were working together for this lordship. Uh, we use the phrase a lot, do anything, go anywhere, give up everything. It's a wonderful promise, and it defined this time. Biblical literacy. We were miles ahead of um, other church groups. Um, and, you know, I even have some of my old classes, Gordon Ferguson in the Boston Church and, and other places. He would teach these classes. We, we heard classes on church history and on the book of Romans, on the book of Acts, prophecy. I have I have all my old exams, and I saved them. I'll tell you why I saved them, because I made A's in all of them. That's why I saved them. And we would take these exams, and the big thing for me is if I could beat my husband. That was that was my – I would get bragging rights to beat him, So and I usually did. So anyway, okay, so these are all the good things that are happening in the 90s, but what happened? You know, it was the best of times and it was the worst of times. Um, there's a lot of conflicting opinions about this. Um, so, you know, everybody's, everybody's got a perspective, but I'm going to give you mine. The pressure to produce, to grow, and to reach our goal came at a very high cost. Uh, statistics. We had pages and pages of statistics. Uh, we were constantly using them. And unfortunately, abusing them. I think there were, there were stats for everything. Baptisms, fallaways, moveaways, studies, members, visitors, contribution. You know, that stats were really um, very overused. Uh, they caused competition. Sometimes, for some people, they caused deceit, as leaders sometimes fudged their numbers to look better. Uh, you know, they were a tool to use to help us grow. But I think in, in many ways, they became a god. Um, with the staff, the accountability, the higher leader damaged the one another relationships, making some leaders harsh and critical of those under them. Uh, the financial pressure to reach this goal was overwhelming to the members and the, and the churches. There were yearly special missions contributions where each member was asked to save for this and sometimes give up to 20 times their regular weekly contribution. Um, many discipling relationships began to be focused on shame and guilt in order to motivate. Um, I have a lot of examples of that. I don't have time to go into it, but it just seems started to be, 
become very humanistic. And in our quest to make some of the pillar churches stronger, um, smaller churches were sort of stripped of their leadership, and they were taken sometimes out of Boston or other churches and sent maybe to L.A. or some other church, and yet that giving church still was expected to grow and do the same things. The hierarchical structure was beginning to cause a lot of dissatisfaction and distrust. And, um, you know, up until then, that structure wasn't questioned as much. It was kind of assumed that it was the right system. Um, but now that system was taking, facing great scrutiny. So what was called God's modern-day movement was flailing. We were flailing, and we weren't growing, and people were unhappy. Um, I think people were trying to be devoted to God, trying to continue to make Jesus Lord, trying to love one another, trying to do the right thing, but there was a burden. People felt a burden. And then, you know, the rug was really pulled out when in um, 2001, Kip, who was at the top of the structure, um, was asked to take a sabbatical uh, due in large part to some family concerns, but some other reasons too. And many of our memberships, many in our membership were feeling the results of all the pressure that had been building up over the previous years. Okay, so finally, um, in early 2003, a letter began to circulate. This was a letter written by Henry Creed, a Canadian who at that time was serving in Boston, I'm sorry, not in Boston, in London. And this letter was initially addressed to elders and evangelists and um, teachers. Um, It was not meant, at least it didn't seem to be meant for the general membership, but it was addressed to those who Creed felt would, could repent of some of the problems in the churches. But this is the age of the internet. And, um, For some of us, it was a new phenomenon, but data could be shared at the blink of an eye, and that letter went all over. Uh, The letter addressed the hierarchy structure, the harsh and authoritarian leadership, entitlement among many leaders, humanistic goals, financial inequity, unrealistic expectations, a lot of accusations about motives, and the letter of scathing rebuke for leaders. And so that's what was in the letter. And it was intended, I I believe, I've read it again recently, it was intended uh, to help the churches. I believe the author was trying to help, not to destroy. It was an appeal to address things that hadn't, he didn't feel had been addressed. However, the result was catastrophic. Um, So the letter made its way through the churches like a tidal wave, the waves of discontent swept through, and many in the church who felt like they'd been mistreated or mishandled began to reverse the trend and lashed out at those who they felt had hurt them. Church staff members began to quit or leave the mission field. Uh, Contributions in the church dropped markedly. And so scores of those left on the mission field had no support and they had to come home to no jobs, to nothing. Um, Basically, the structure that we relied on fell apart and the churches were left in disarray. Um, I do want to make it clear that at this time there was no suggestion of a, you know, because sometimes people talk about the big sec- the big scandal in 2003. There was no sex scandal. There was no financial impropriety. It might have been some misuse of some funds, but no illegal use of funds. Um, so that's what happened in 2003. It took a long time to recover from this for all of us. It took a lot of st- – we lost a lot of staff members. We lost hundreds of church members. And the brotherhood, the unity, every, everything felt, felt shattered. 
I want to read this scripture in 2 Corinthians 4. It says, but we have this treasure, starting in verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We lost a lot in the years after 2003. But just like the scripture says, it revealed so much to all of us that we are all jars of clay. And all we do, it has to be from God. It has to be for God. It has to be all about God. We are not the builders of the churches. God is. We don't convert. God is the one who works in the hearts of people. Yes, we are used by God, but the power belongs to God alone. We felt some of those words, persecuted, perplexed, pushed down, despairing, but God did not abandon us. The ICOC members and leaders have repented, continue to repent, of harsh authoritarian uh, and hierarchical type, uh, types of structure and leadership that was dominant in the 1990s. That is not to say that we're completely rid of it, but it's not an accepted practice anymore. We have repented and continue to repent of humanistic and overuse of stats, although we still want to know how many members are in our church and be want to be aware of our growth. Any of those frailties can easily set in, creep in, but I think that because of what's happened, we're more aware of them, we're more sensitive to them, and we can root them out quicker. The problems that happen might be endemic, but they're not pandemic. I think we all know what those words mean now. The rebuilding of churches and ministries has been a Herculean effort on the part of many faithful men and women. <clears throat> and it continues. After the first few years following the fallout, some leaders were so afraid of asking anything of their congregations um, that, that they would, like, make all decisions based on fear and not on faith. They were so afraid of, of, of overextending things with their church. But with time, that continued to be healed. As a worldwide movement, we are now, um, we don't have, we have we, instead of a one central leadership structure uh, <clears throat> and forced connections between church based on authority and finance, uh, what we have in place now is an agreement of co cooperation among the churches with representatives from each region of the world having a voice in decisions that affect our uh, fellowship as a whole. It's not a perfect system but it allows for churches and regions of the world, which are disparate in culture and language, to move their ministries forward while remaining connected with the rest of, of their fellowship, of the fellowship. In the meantime, as the healing and reworking was going on, along with discussions and meetings about how we can turn things around, the man who was so instrumental in where we were at, both good and bad, had a turning point in his <coughs> kip, our brother, my brother-in-law, decided that he was not going to be the one to continue to lead. Uh, I'm sorry, let me say it again. He decided that if he was not going to be the one to continue to lead what he called the modern-day movement, then he would depart from it. Kit moved from L.A. to Portland, Oregon, and served in the church there, but was highly vocal in his criticisms of the International Churches of Christ. After several repeated attempts and appeals for him to cease and desist, his negative commentary, which was in sermons and in bulletins and online, many brothers officially warned him, and eventually Kip left the ICOC. Um, 
In time, he and Elena moved back to L.A. and began another church group called the International Christian Church. Although we share a a very similar plan of salvation, the ICC has a very different view of church government, insisting that there must be a central leadership for all the church, and that would be him. Uh, He uses biblical mandates to insist on this and frequently condemns the ICOC as autonomous and lukewarm. Now, I want to say Kip is family, and I love him. I pray for him daily. I want to give only the facts and not the feelings, but suffice it to say that his closest friends urged him not to do what he's doing. Um, I love and appreciate Kip and Elena, but I do not agree with them. It's, it's, it's a source of sadness for all of us, and I hope we can keep, keep them in our prayers. After so many years in Boston, okay, I just want to close. i gotta, I got to finish here. I'm, I'm going to give you a few more thoughts. You know, we, we were in Boston for many years, uh, then we were in Florida for a while, then we went to Northern Virginia. But after so many years in Boston, it's only natural that I became a New England Patriots fan, New England Patriots football fan. So I, I'm, I'm saying that outright. And um, how does that tie into what we're talking about here? Well, I love the quote that Tom Brady referred to as he was winning his Super Bowl rings. He said, We have not come this far only to come this far. You know, in a week and a half, Tom Brady will compete in his his 10th Super Bowl with the hope of winning his 7th Super Bowl ring. Now, I know sports analogies are a little cliche, but there it is. We have come so far in our churches. We have not come this far only to come this far. We cannot stay where we are right now. We have to keep growing, and I don't mean that numerically. I mean it, although that's okay, too. I say that in the sense of every disciple taking those four themes and learning new and innovative ways to apply them. Mission. How can we get the message of Jesus out to a new, in a new and fresh way? We live in a different era. Biblical illiteracy on one hand and greater understanding that comes with better exegesis and better scholarship on the other. How do we rephrase some of our vernacular even to make it more appropriate for this generation? What young people will step up and develop ways of outreach that works? People in our world are looking for meaning and purpose and community. How can the church provide that? How can we point them to Jesus to show them the way? Relationships. People understand better than ever the need for community. Not being able to have it makes people realize how much they need it. How can the church meet that need and provide inclusiveness, a safe place, a welcoming atmosphere? Lordship. Can we begin to make Jesus the center of all of our conversations, our sermons, our decisions? Can we look at the passages like the Sermon on the Mount and realize how far we have to go to have that kind of heart and action? You know, the world is full of self-help books, feel-good religion, and make-up-your-own. And I like to feel good. I like to help myself, but Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is the one I want to follow. How can we do better at living this? And biblical literacy. With the knowledge and opportunities we have literally at our fingers, right in our front of our computers, how can we become a church that knows the Bible so well that it astounds others? I'm alarmed at some of the things that People don't seem to understand or know about the Bible, about the history, about some of the stories, about some of the characters. How can we change that? Are we really digging in and learning, or are we allowing typical 
shallow, one-verse daily devotionals to see what feeds us. Mission, relationships, lordship, biblical literacy, that's what we started with, and that's what we're going to continue to grow with. I hope that we hope that we will see, be making history ourselves uh, just to, to show God how much we honor and, and thank him. Uh, a few months ago, I watched my granddaughter Cadence wade into the surf of Paia Bay in Maui and confess Jesus as Lord. As my son and daughter-in-law dipped her beneath the waves, I wondered what her life as a Christian will be like. She will have to find her path, but I hope that the church will offer her what she needs in life. Let's do what we can to make that happen. Thanks. Thanks so much, Kay. Appreciate you and your, uh, gosh, your perspective and just your thorough humility and honesty about what you experienced and what you saw. Um, very, very grateful. Um, right now we're going to do some question and answers. I know they're flooding in at this point. (laughs) So I'm going to do my best to, uh, it's interesting. Usually you get kind of a theme and it's kind of similar questions, but we're getting quite a bit of unique, different ones. So, um, you know, you got some encouragement about the Tom Brady, uh, close there. Yay! You're LA through and through here. (laughs) Um, All right, so one question uh, from Deanna Kendall, which I think you you touched on somewhat, but she asked, um, how has being a woman changed within the ICOC movement, Um, and where do you see the church going with elevating women's roles within the church, of -hmm. course, within biblical boundaries? Yeah. Um, I, if, if you want to go to Disciples Today, Women's Day, I wrote an article on um, that was published, I think, a few weeks ago called The Bible and Gender, A Perspective. And as most of you may know, there's a, there's a book out. It didn't really start out being a book, but it is now a book called The Bible and Gender. And it's a, it's a book filled with um, articles and um, essays about some of the controversial scriptures um, that we have adhered to, um, and it's just an, an, an interpretation of not uh, an interpretation of those difficult passages. Um, that doesn't necessarily solve the problem of what you're asking for. I just think you have to kind of know where those passages, where, where our churches have been, and why, and it's been according to um, reading those passages and taking some of them literally. Um, I think that through the years we have learned that you know. There's a lot of um, background with those passages that explain them. They're not, uh, for many people, they don't feel like they are uh, what we call transcending culture. We, we don't believe that they are meant for uh, all time, but they address a certain situation, a certain uh, problem or issue in that time in the church in Corinth or the church in Ephesus, whatever. Um, but I think that... Um, no, I think that we're making progress in that, and I think we're not all going to agree on what that all those mean. Um, but I do think that the churches are a lot more open to seeing that, and um, this is not a, a cultural thing. This is really just trying to figure out what is how is God using us, and I do see women's voices as being very important and needed. Um, but I, I hope that the demeanor will be one that is godly and humble. Um, we can't 
you know, I don't want to overrun the men. We need the men's ministry. We men need men in leadership. Uh, but we need women to uh, share their stories. And we need the men to hear them. A lot of times you know, there's a lot of women's classes that are really awesome uh, that the men just don't get to hear um, because of our just sort of the way we do things. And um, I just think that, you know, we've got a long way to go, but we've got to take it in the right way. We've got to go right and uh, with humble humility and, um, you know, honesty and sincerity. And let's let's just keep trying to do the right thing in that regard. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, even that article I wrote on the Bible and gender, um, it's in the women's section of Disciples Today. So what does that tell you? It, we're still there. We're still in that era of it's not it's not in the main section. It's in the women's section. How many men are going to go to the women's section and read that? You know, I don't know. Maybe some of you will now. But, you know, it's just it's part of our culture, and it's going to take a while, I think, to change it. Thanks, Kay. Appreciate that. Um, when you said trained ministers, where was their training obtained? The college they attended or other ministers from the Crossroads? Right. Good question. Because the Crossroads Church and, and KIPP in particular up in Boston um, had became more convinced that sending these young college men to a seminary or a Church of Christ school wasn't as, as effective as training right there in teaching them how to lead Bible studies, teaching them how to preach, teaching them how to lead soul talks or Bible talks, whatever. Um, and so there was a marked drop in sending young men and women to seminary. And in fact, there was a little bit of a, um, you know, a little bit of a disparaging view of that, you know, people who wanted to go get, you know, a degree in Bible or whatever. Well, let's just live it. Let's just do it. Let's just walk together. And so the, the, the idea, which was a good idea, you know, Jesus trained people by walking with them, by having them watch him and then sending them out. And that was the philosophy. And um, that was the way that things were done, is that, you know, you would be trained. And now, at the same time, in college, a lot of these people did study, you know, some sort of religion or something. So even their, their majors in college might have included that. And at church, there were offerings of what was called um, ministry training programs. Uh, let's see, the, uh, there was another name, ministry training program and something else. I can't remember. But these were pretty intense classes that the, anybody interested in going into the ministry had to take and do well in. And they not only had to do well in those classes, but they had to do well in leading their Bible studies and in bringing, bringing people to the Lord. So it was definitely a um, hands-on type of training. I think uh, in years later, I think people have realized how much, how valuable it would be for these ministers to have a little bit more formal academic training. And so I think that trend is changing, but I still think that, you know, that's not going to train a guy or a girl as much as walking with someone who knows how to do it. Great. Thank you so much. Um, kind of going back to the women's question, um, what do you think are good ways to change that male-dominant culture? Well, you, you're doing it. You're doing it. I mean, you asked me to speak, and this is, you know, people don't, the younger people don't even realize how, like, wow, this is an earthquake happening here <laughs> for me to do a lesson. And I know it's not 
I'm not standing in front of you on a stage with a podium or anything, but, you know, you're allowing me to teach you, which that's, you know, that's earth shattering. Uh, at the beginning of this, you had three girls leading a prayer. I think it was three. Um, that never happened when I was their age or up until, gosh, recently. I mean, you know, that's pretty new. And um, so I think, you know, just allowing women to have a voice, I think it is up to, in a lot of ways, the men giving us that and opening themselves up to that and knowing and recognizing that we have something to say um, and that we, we want to help, you know. And so I just think you're doing that, and um, I, I just think that needs to continue. Um, I, I do want to say okay. women have to be – you know, in a lot of ways, you have to be extra vigilant, which you shouldn't have to be, but it's the way it is, to make sure that your um, demeanor and your um, and how you come across is right. You know, I, I don't think the men want to hear bossy, kind of yelling and, you know, overbearing women. No, no, no guy wants to hear that. No woman wants to hear that. And I don't want to hear a man do that either, for that matter. But, you know, I think we have to be really careful in how we come across uh, so that we can be heard. You know, that's the whole idea is we want to be heard. So um, we have to be careful how we do that. And I'm a woman and I'm directing midweek. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> okay. Uh, There's so many questions. Okay. Uh-oh. Um the church splits in the 80s. What percentage of these were initiated by the Crossroads campus ministry segment as opposed to the more traditional element? I have to say, you know, that a lot of times the guys that would go into these traditional churches, mainline, mainstream, whatever you want to call them, um, you know, they grew and eventually a lot of people left. A lot of the mainstream people left. And because the in a lot of cities has more than one congregation, they would just go to a different congregation. The actual splitting, that those were more um, those were more big deals, and that honestly wasn't as much what happened as the other, where people would just slowly leave. And eventually the church was, you know, mostly people that had, had been converted. Um, but I think in the 80s in particular, I think a lot of people were more, um, it, was, it was a little bit more of a dissolving of the people in the Church of Christ that were there. And they would, you know, I mean, you, you know, these college kids came in and sort of took over. <laughs> so for good or for ill, that's what happened. Um, and then, of course, you know, later, like I said, um, when church plantings were sent out, they were sent out um to to not be a part of the churches of Christ. So in order in order to sort of stop that difficulty, they just said we're just going to go and start our own church. So we kind of left the Church of Christ out of it. But even then, we were still kind of considered Church of Christ until again um, the 90s. And do you now look that, back at these splits though as a necessary? Do you now look back at these splits as a necessary birth of something new or wrongly divisive? Um, That's a good question. And like I said at one point, this is what was going going on at that time. Um, At that time, there was a lot of criticism and a lot of pushback 
Um, could we have handled it better? Of course, I think so. But um, I don't think it was, I don't think it's ever a good thing when Christians can't work together and figure it out. I don't ever feel like that's good. I think that, um, I think we had this mission and a lot of people in the churches of Christ, as, as, as has been said, they weren't growing. They weren't, you know, the churches weren't growing. They, for whatever reason, there wasn't a uh, commitment to that. And there was a commitment to that with the others. So, you know, you can't kind of had two goals here. And um, so, you know, in retrospect, of course, I would think we should have done it differently. <laughs> but that's not how it was at the time. You can always say, well, I have 2020 vision, you know, in retrospect. But that's not a, you know, nowadays, I don't know if we say that. But um, I really wish some things had been done differently. But that's not, we didn't have those tools at that time. We didn't know what we know now. And um, so it, it was inevitable that it happened. I wish it hadn't happened, but it had to happen. That makes sense. Thank you. Um, okay, so there was a question about church reconstructions. Oh, yeah. Um, and let me see. If you could just touch on it a little bit about okay. the church reconstructions. That you know, I had that in my notes, but I just thought, I just can't, I didn't have time. But um, in fact, um, that bulletin I was reading, um, it highlighted some of the churches that weren't church plantings, but they were called reconstructions. What happened in a reconstruction was, okay, like, like let me give you an example. Um, uh, Atlanta sent... Um, Somebody, maybe somebody sent from Atlanta up to Boston to be trained better. But the church in Atlanta was very supportive of that, but they weren't where they needed to be. So some people from Boston would go to an Atlanta, or I know it happened in Jamaica, it happened in Orlando, a few places where they would, in San Diego, where they would come in and, and literally get with every member of the church. And, you know, just in one sense, you just want to make sure you're a disciple, you want to do this, you're a part of this. And um, that, what that was called a reconstruction. It was just working with the people that were in that church that weren't going to move all the way to Boston or Chicago or something or New York. They were there. They were, you know, that was their homes. But how can we work with that church to make it a better church? So they, the leaders there would invite people to come in and do a reconstruction of churches. Um, and so that happened quite a bit. And, um, yeah, so that's about it. I don't know if there's any more you need to know about that. But. Okay, thank you. Steve, uh, do we have time for one more question, you think? Sure, let's just do one more. It's 57, 58, but we, you know, we can do one more, and then we'll close out with a prayer. And um, all the questions in the chat, maybe I can email them, or you can email them, hon. You have to, to uh, Kay. She might be able to respond, and we can still have her thoughts on those. Okay, great. All right, so last question. Uh, with this new wave of young people and the widening generational culture gap, what is your insight slash advice for this generation who are going to inherit the ICOC? Take it higher. We haven't come this far only to come this far. I just think that um, I, I, I think I think we need to rethink some of the traditional ways we do things. And, you know, honestly, even this is – of rethinking what we're doing right now, a Zoom call, conversations, people at home, you know, I mean, I think we're rethinking all of that. 
But I think we need to rethink how we present the gospel message. Um, I think we need to use words that are a little bit less um, traditional. It's not like it's wrong to say Bible or, I mean, not wrong to say sin or anything like that. But I just think we need to use words that help people to understand what Jesus came for better. Um, You know, I've been using a lot of times the words shame or guilt um, because I think people relate to shame, but they don't relate to the word sin. And then, you know, once you, you know, once you can start talking and studying, you can explain, you know, you have shame because you have sin. But I think even in, in, in sermons and lessons and Bible studies, I just think that, honestly, I've said this before, I think young people need to look at our study series, and I don't even know what your study series is like there, but look at it, and is this relatable to young people? Is this, you know, how can we make this, um, you know, more relevant and understandable? Uh, People, you know, young, there's so many people in the United States that, you know, they say, you know, what religion are you? And the the number of nuns, you know, N-O-N-E, I'm no religion, is just skyrocketing. People don't any religion. Um, I think, you know, people don't know the Bible at all because they think it's an antiquated book. I, I just think there's got to be a way that young people can, you know, use their innovativeness and their creativity and figure out ways to make the gospel message attractive um, and make it more relevant. And I don't really even know what that means, honestly. I think I'm older. I you know, but even I feel it at times. I feel like people don't understand this. Um, and what is the overarching perspective or the message of the Bible? Um, it's God wants a relationship with us. Uh, God wants to be in our lives. He wants to be present. He wants to help us and guide us and comfort us. Um, and Jesus is God's revealing of how much God loves us. And those kinds of themes have got to be worked more and more. And who Jesus is, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, all of that. You know, I think sometimes in our in our tradition, you know, we have our plan of salvation and, you know, here's how you become a Christian and here's what you need to know. And I just don't think that's appealing to people. Um, it's got to be reworked. And, and it can be. It can be. I mean, I, I believe in the younger generation to – Take it to places that that we don't, you know, me in particular, that I never would have thought of. I mean, you know, I don't know how many of you saw the, uh, what's her name, Gorman, Andrea, or Gorman, the poet, who uh, performed at the inauguration ceremony last Wednesday, and she's two years old. And, and I mean, she just elo- was so eloquent and elegant and beautiful and I just think people are yearning for that. They want it so bad. And we can give it to them. We have something that is so beautiful in the scriptures. God's spirit can give us, you know, what we need to present things in that kind of way. Um, and I think the younger generation can do it. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your devotion and heart and thank you for your faithful service for so many years and continuing that by sharing your story and your journey with us tonight we're very grateful for you Kay. thank you thank you and thank you all for listening to me and i know it's been a long a long session but um i hope it's helpful and i hope uh you know if there's any questions that you send me in, in, in an email i'll i'll try to answer them
Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Kay. You want to close out with a prayer, babe? Sure. Well, Father, we're so grateful for allowing um, us to be together tonight to learn the history of the ICOC and uh, in particularly from Kay. Really just such a blessing to have her. We pray that you continue to bless her and her husband and her children and grandchildren. Um, we thank you for the West Side Church for their questions and just uh, for their faithfulness and for their eagerness to be equally invested in the church that not only that they get to be a part of, but that they hand over to their uh, children and the next generation. And we're just so thankful for tonight. We pray that it was edifying to everyone and that this really will promote some great dialogue that will help us be a better, stronger, more faithful family to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.